Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm your host, Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, of course, is Adam Pawatic. Uh, I'd like to remind our guests that after we're done our interview, Adam and I will have an after show where we kind of digest the conversation we're about to have. Our guest today is a gentleman by the name of Clifford Frazier, who is the Chief Business Development Officer at Equiton Inc. Thanks for joining us, Cliff. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate it. So as always, we like to start by just kind of getting a history of who you are and how you came to be. So maybe just start with where you were and how you ended up at your current role. Sure, sure. So if we... uh sort of cast our minds back to, gosh, it would be the late 90s. I am that old. Did my undergrad at Brock and and became an accountant. Thankfully, I stay away from debits and credits now. Uh, They don't trust me with those kinds of things. So worked my way through public accounting at KPMG for a few years. And then uh, because I I grew up in the the West End in the Hammer in Hamilton, wanted to get to the big city. So made a move to Toronto and, and started getting into LifeCoast worked at one of Canada's oldest life insurance companies, then actually flipped over into investments there. And then uh, after Canada Life kind of got bought by Great West back in 2002, I guess, it moved around a little bit, worked at a small securitization shop, did mortgage lending. That's kind of how I, I kind of fell into real estate. A lot of mortgage lending, a lot of commercial construction, condo construction, and then worked at Macquarie Financial for a number of years. As a business manager there, we had a, I think when I started, we had a $6 billion lending book and left, it was close to $9 billion and then moved over to BMO, did a stint in tech at BMO actually. And then uh, and then that kind of brings us current to Equiton where I was brought on by the CEO who is a close personal friend of mine. Uh, we go back 40 years, if that's even possible. Yeah, 40 years. And he uh, he said, you know, look, I, I'd, like, uh, I'd like someone to help me start this real estate company. So that's kind of how I came to Equiton. Why, um, I have to ask this, like, why, how could you ever possibly leave lending? I mean, we're still doing a little bit of it here. So uh, I haven't completely left lending, but, you know, I was in lending when it wasn't very attractive. You know, I was in lending when it was like CMBs and when 2000, I was in it in 2007 when Ooh. the world, the world went to hell in a handbasket. Well, you didn't, can you mention the name? Who, what was the small securitizer you worked for? It was called Maple Mortgage Trust Advisor. So not the one that Scotia owns. This was a small independent one. And so we raised money through asset-backed commercial paper and extendable commercial paper, as well as floating rate notes. And so we had about a billion dollar book there, but we all came from the LifeCo space. So we, you know, we had our money kind of tranched out. We weren't overly indebted in any kind of one particular type of investment, but when Lehman fell and the, all the Canadian banks kind of, you know, panicked and pooped the bed, they didn't, they didn't want to roll commercial paper and extendable commercial paper anymore. They didn't want to have, they didn't want to have mortgages anywhere kind of thing. So I do recall, I won't tell you which banks, but I do recall sitting in a boardroom. We had, I think we had at that time, probably three or 400 million in liquidity facilities with them. And they, it was kind of like a, it was an episode of the Sopranos where they just kind of said, you know, I won't use the expletives, but they said, where's my money? And they wanted their money back. So we had to actually unwind the portfolio. And surprisingly, you know, for what is considered an illiquid asset, you know, everybody got a hundred cents on the dollar while I was there. So, you know, even for an illiquid asset, as long as you are smart about it, you can, uh, you know, you can get your money out. So that was my stint in lending. You learned a lot. I learned a lot, lost a bit of hair uh, over it too. So yeah, it was a good time though. Well, then can, can I, I got to ask then, given that we are, you know, mid mid crisis now, you know, as always, we date stamp these things. We're July 22nd and we've been in the pandemic for a couple of months now. If you were to 
compare the way you felt the last few months mm. about the market as compared to what you were going through then? What were the differences and which one was worse? Uh, that is a really good question. And I think I'll kind of couch my answer a little bit. I think in 2008, certainly for me personally, it was a lot of unknowns. We were in the hands of the banks. The banks didn't want to roll their paper. They didn't want to give you know additional liquidity. And so we had to you know, we had to pay them back and we had to figure out how to do that. So there was a lot of unknowns and it was strictly because, you know, the crisis and, you know, sort of, so it would have been the summer of 07 when things started to go south for us. It was strictly a real estate slash banking problem or more, you know, more to the point, a credit problem. And so that, you know, directly affected exactly what we were, exactly what we were doing. Whereas now, um, you know, we still have, I think the experience of going through 2008 and kind of, you know, being able to kind of see the bigger picture, okay, we've got an immediate need that we have to, you know, that we have to deal with. What I think we're still left to play with here in, you know, kind of mid-crisis here is where is unemployment going to land? Even though the economy is starting to, you know, we're going to phase three, we're going to phase four, whatever, there are still going to be a lot of jobs that once the CERB runs out, what are people going to do? Are they going to be able to pivot and kind of reposition. I'm still waiting for the banks. I'm, I'm still waiting for the, you know, the other shoe to drop at the banks. I mean, certainly they don't want to have a lot of bad press by, you know, by laying off a lot of people now. But having worked in banking for a long time, I know November 1st is their, the start of their new year. And, and I'm expecting to see some things happening there in terms of job losses, because although they may not they may still need the same amount of real estate space because they're going to have to physically distance staff. So they may not cut back on the amount of real estate, just my opinion. But if they've been working remotely and maybe we don't need all, all those mobile mortgage specialists or those mobile financial services, experts, I think maybe there's still something that there's another shoe to drop is what I'm thinking. So I think having the experience of going through 2008, I realized quite quickly for you know, the purposes of our business that we need to get out in front of our stakeholders quickly, you know, with a message of here's what's happening, here's how we're going to deal with it, and here's how we're going to be able to work through it and continue to keep them updated and let them know what's going on with their relationship with us. So I think that was something that we probably didn't do very well in 2008, only because it was pure firefighting mode for us. Whereas, you know, even though we were in firefighting mode here, I think we were a lot better prepared. You know, that's interesting just because it's everywhere you look, there's this sort of, I want to call it like serviceization. Everybody's got to provide better service because you're all in a competing perspective or a competition mode and clearly providing more service to your investors is how you kind of keep them happy. We're kind of jumping around a little bit, but let's back up just so that people have a better perspective of who you are and what you're currently doing and where you are. So you kind of, you got approached by a friend of 40 years Mm -hmm. to start Equiton. What year is that? Sort of 2009, 2010? No, that was 2014. The sort of seed was planted and we opened the doors in 2015. And really the purpose was to create real estate investments that were accessible to as many Canadians as possible and to do it in the private space. Because again, based on our experience, you know, my CEO spent 20 plus years in real estate and real estate development, real estate investing. He's always done it privately. And so, you know, the appeal or the romanticism of, you know, being a public company just never really resonated with real estate specifically as an asset, because I want the value of my investment to be reflected by the value of the asset, not the, you know, the whims of the market or the tweets of a prime minister kind of thing. So investing in real estate privately always made sense to us. The timing was good. 2015, we spent, uh, I mean, we spent the year 
kind of figuring out how we were going to create these real estate products. And thankfully, uh, in 2016, some new rules around who could invest in private real estate changed quite dramatically in the province. The, you know, the rest of the country had slightly more, I don't want to say lenient, but they were certainly more available to investors. Whereas the province of Ontario, if you wanted to invest privately in real estate, you had to be a, a rich person, basically or an institution. That was the only way you could get access to these kinds of investments. But the OSC brought in some new rules and regulations on who could invest. So it's available to a much wider investor population than it was in the past. So that worked out well for us, the timing in in terms of being able to create these kinds of investments for people. And was that just good luck, the timing? You had no visibility on this when you were creating your structure? No, no. Initially, we thought we were just going to, you know, focus on raising capital by and large with high net worth accredited investors. So it wasn't part of the design. It was it was kind of fluke that the rules happened to change in the province, co- you know, coincided with us doing this. Well, let's, let, I mean, let's maybe talk about your investment, not your investment strategy, but your mm-hmm. investor procurement strategy. You know, you, so you decided you were going to kind of open up this sort of private equity option opportunities for individuals to invest or people to invest in real estate. Yes. Maybe profile who your typical investor looks like, what your approach is to finding those investors, and maybe just kind of talk through from 2015 to the initial energy to kind of where you are today and what your funds look like today. Yeah, sure. So when, you know, when we launched, as I said, we were kind of looking at, you know, raising, going out and raising money privately. So what happened is the OSC created a new investor category, which is called an eligible investor. And so to qualify as an eligible investor, there's a, you know, a net asset test or an income test that you need to pass. So, you know, in the past, an accredited investor is someone that, you know, makes more than $200,000 on their own or has more than a million in liquid assets or more than 5 million in net worth. So, you know, rich person. The eligible investor category is an investor category where if you make $75,000 or more on your own, $125,000 or more as a household, or you have more than $400,000 in net worth, then you're eligible to invest up to $100,000 in a private real estate investment similar to what we have. So when, you know, these rules came out, we figured out quite quickly, okay, how do we now make our product available to that investor category? So there was a bunch of OSC registrations that we had to go through, which was, you know, time consuming. So that's what we spent, I would say the last half of of 2015, early 2016, getting all those registrations in place to be able to then offer these kinds of funds. So the, you know, the, the typical investor, we have spent a lot of money quote unquote, wasted a lot of money with advertising firms on coming up with what that, you know, ideal client is. And I would say that it doesn't really, it kind of cuts across socioeconomic factors. I couldn't say that it's, oh, you know, it's a husband and a wife with 2.3 kids and whatever. It has actually nothing to do with that. You know, the, the ideal client for these kinds of investments is someone that is looking for what I'll call alternatives. They're looking for something different than traditional mutual funds, stocks, ETFs. So they are looking at, you know, potentially they're looking at pot stocks. Maybe they were looking at Bitcoin when that was the flavor of the month. They're looking for, you know, real estate because they know that, you know, when it comes time to retire, if they rely on the roller coaster that is the public market, you know, they're probably going to have two choices, fancy fees or whiskers when it comes to what they're going to eat during their retirement. So, you know, they want something that will bring them, you know, some kind of stability and predictability and, and hopefully higher returns. And so that could be a 
elementary school French teacher or the CFO of a large manufacturing company. It's really someone that is out there looking for something different. So that's kind of who we target in terms of clients. And so we do that you know, directly with clients, but we also work with a network of investment advisors across the country so that they can provide our product to their client. And what's the yield expectations for these investors? Yeah. So, you know, with our apartment fund, which is our flagship fund, it's got a very sexy name. It's called the Equiton Residential Income Fund Trust. Didn't have a hand in naming it. Um, <laughs> in, in hindsight, I wish I had. But essentially, that invests in large-scale apartments across Canada and on an equity basis. So it's not lending. So you, you're a part owner in this growing portfolio of apartments. And the nice thing about the fund and the way it's structured is that the distributions that are paid, so it pays monthly distributions as well as the, you know, the share price going up over time. We're targeting a 7 to 10% total return. So that's your monthly cash flow as well as the share price. But the beauty of the monthly returns because of the way this fund is structured, the distributions are considered return of capital for tax purposes. So what does that mean is that investors that are investing through cash, not through a registered account, any of those distributions, it's tax deferred. So they don't pay tax on it today. They will pay tax on it at some point down the line when they exit the fund. That's when they'll have a tax obligation. So not all funds work that way. It's a kind of a couple of unique features of the way our fund is structured. So 7 to 10% all day, every day is kind of what you can expect in a stabilized portfolio like the one that, uh, the one that we're running. Is there a minimum? Minimum investment amount? Yeah. So the minimum investment amount is $10,000. Is there a maximum? You can't have more than 50% of the fund. So if you are coming with, you know, hundred million or so, I'd probably have to have a discussion with compliance to see if we can get you in. Yeah, Aaron, you got to slow down with your investment. What about, sorry, you know, my brain's spinning here because I find this really fascinating. So you, are they open-ended fund, closed-ended funds? Like what's the, is there a minimum duration you have to stay in? Like maybe just kind of describe some of the other kind of yeah, components sure, sure. here. Yeah, investment. sure. So it is an open-ended fund. And it, the reason that it's an open-ended fund is because we are in an exponential growth mode. So one of the things that we've done that I think is very unique to us, it's great to have capital right, from investors and from investment advisors, but you need to be able to deploy it and you need to deploy it prudently. I don't want to have bags of money sitting in the office and we've got nothing to buy. So, you know, one of the things, because we are at Equiton, we're all real estate experts. That's where, you know, many of us have cut our teeth for our entire career. We know that having product pipeline is very, very important. So one of the things that we do is we work with select brokers and agents across the country to bring us deals, whether they be, you know, off-market, pocket listings, and, and we, we go through the, you know, the public bid process too. But another thing that we do is that we go, quite frankly, we go door-to-door. So we've recognized that there is, you know, a large percentage of apartments in Ontario, specifically Ontario, but in Canada, you know, they're largely privately held, mom and pops, or small partnerships that have owned these buildings for 30 years, they're mortgage-free, they're spitting out cash, and quite frankly, they tend not to you know, run them efficiently or effectively, and they leave a lot of money on the table. And, and as you guys well know, you know, apartments can be a game of pennies sometimes, um, but it's important to, to, you know, to make sure you grab all the value that you can as often as you can, because I think, you know, a big risk in apartments is getting complacent, but that's where you, you know, if you take your eye off the ball, you can leave a lot of money on the table. So having said that, what we have done is in our backyard for now, because that's where we like to shop while we're growing this fund, is we've mapped all the privately held apartments that are greater than 40 units. 
So I know the name, address, and phone number of those apartment owners, and my acquisition team goes door to door. So I don't necessarily have to wait for publicly available building, which everybody and their brother gets that listing, and then it's a bidding war, and whoever's got the deepest pockets wins, or someone wants to come in with a, you know, with a huge price and then chisel the owner during, you know, sort of during the due diligence period. We we all see that that those things can happen. We don't have to worry about that because we're finding a lot of these deals privately. So that really gives us the opportunity to deploy capital that comes in very very effectively. And you know, if we want to touch on the pandemic a little bit, we didn't have to worry about, oh, CBRE is not putting out any listings or any of the big brokerage houses, the listings aren't coming out because I'm having those continuous conversations with owners because I'm dealing with them directly. So I think that gives us a leg up uh, when it comes to acquiring assets. I've actually got a COVID question in two parts. Sure. Uh, you mentioned you have an open-ended fund. Have you seen an increase in redemptions? And I don't mean that in an, as an insulting way to ask if people oh, need no. money to fear the market. But Very And then also if you could touch on your deal flow as well, the other end too. You mentioned that you're still seeing deals even during COVID. So it'd be great if you could talk specifically about life since March. Yeah, sure. So, and I know that there's a couple of things that Aaron asked that I didn't kind of touch on. Um, so maybe just wrap that up. So, you know, hold periods kind of thing. We always say here at Equiton, you know, the longer you hold real estate, the more money you're going to make. It's a get rich slow investment. You know, we do have monthly liquidity in the fund. So if people do need to get out for whatever reason, they are certainly able to. There are what I would call not lockup periods because you are able to get out on a monthly basis, but there are some early redemption fees during the first three to five years. It just depends on you know, if you're dealing with an investment advisor, you may not have that same kind of lockup period, but monthly redemptions, you know, three to five years at the very least, if people want to get into these, you know, we say to investors all the time, if you think you want to test drive this for six months or a year, it's not the appropriate investment for you. Go and buy a big public REIT and fill your boots with that because you can get in you know, at a moment's notice kind of thing. So three to five years is really what you should have in mind. And because most people are investing through registered plans, it's in their Lira, you know, they're not accessing those funds anyway. So this is a great kind of set it and forget it investment. So, you know, in terms of redemptions during COVID, no, actually we saw the opposite. I do know that there are some funds that were open for new money, but closed for redemptions during the kind of the height of the pandemic. We actually didn't do that. Um, we were open for new funds. And if people wanted to redeem, they were able to redeem. We actually didn't see an increase in redemptions. What we did see is more advisors and more investors coming in to the investment because it behaved the way it should. You know, the value didn't decrease. You didn't see vacancies go up, returns, distributions, everything held steady. So we didn't have an issue there. We actually saw more people coming into the fund, which was a good, you know, a, a good, uh, a good problem, if you will, for us. You know, in terms of your, the second part of your question on deal flow, I mean, what we did see is a little bit of a delay. I mean, there were a few deals that we were working on where the owner said, no, I'm not doing anything. I'm going to just cool my heels here and let's wait to see how this all kind of shakes out. And then others we had conversations with and they said, look, you know, we're still interested in selling, but, you know, maybe we're going to have to extend the due diligence period because we don't want you walking through the units. We don't want you bringing your engineers and consultants. So there was a bit of a delay there. So what I think we're going to see happen is, I mean, we're, we were able to grow the fund quite aggressively during the first six months of the year. We've got another deal closing at the end of the next week. And we're hoping that sort of Q, late Q3 and Q4, we're kind of, we're just kind of, it's going to be backlog for us in terms of uh, acquisition. So still seeing really good deal flow. And now that 
you know, we're in, now we're allowed to walk around with masks on. People are a little bit more comfortable and, and, and you're able to, we're able to get, you know, consultants and engineers and things like that to come out to sites to say, okay, check out the HVAC and the boilers and, you know, all that stuff during due diligence. So there was a little bit of a delay, but nothing uh, onerous. I have six questions, so let me go through them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to grab my pen and do some shorthand. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, again, I find this so, this is so interesting. And I, I can't remember if it actually came out, but I mean, you guys are almost exclusively invested in apartments. Uh, I think just for our listeners, we're going to get to some you know, apartment fundamentals, I think, in a little bit of time. But let's keep focusing kind of right now on sort of the, your funds and, and the way mm-hmm. that they're deployed. Uh, I don't have six. I have two. Okay. Uh, let's start with just asset valuation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just fund valuation and just kind of how you're challenged right now, given that there aren't really many transactions. I don't think appraisals really provide much value. So what, how are you handling that in sort of in this sort of COVID period? Yeah. So, you know, the way our funds are valued, you know, the, the NAV or the net asset value, it's really driven by exactly that, those appraisals. So what happens with funds like ours, or at least the way we run the fund is we have an appraisal, a third party appraisal done at the time of purchase. And then on the anniversary of the purchase date, we will have another appraisal, okay? And then year-end, we do a mark-to-market because that's what the the bean counters want us to do. But we use similar kind of methodology. So, you know, with respect to appraisals, what, what we saw, you know, kind of during March and April, and I would guess the kind of early part of May, is you had appraisers that were reluctant to go out and actually look at these buildings, you know, and it's not suitable, you know, to necessarily just do a kind of quick drive by and say, oh, yeah, that looks, you know, like it's worth an extra five million bucks. Um, So none of that happens. There was a delay in appraisals coming through. But when you look at the fundamentals and the metrics that they use in the appraisals, you know, by and large, there's, you know, three, four different methodologies. And then they, you know, you guys have seen all that, how they how they come up with what their appraised value is based on a bunch of different factors. But I think the biggest things that you know, the two biggest components that go into the appraisal is one is net operating income, right? And then, you know, the the kind of the value of the asset itself, right? So with respect to net operating income, unless you saw a permanent impairment in the net operating income, you know, the fundamentals of that apartment building haven't changed, right? If all of a sudden, you know, if so we invest in or close to economically diverse hubs. So you want to be where, you know, you want to be in a decent sized metropolitan area or close to that because that's where people want to live. If you're in, you know, not to disparage any, you know, northern town in any northern province that has, you know, the coal mine as the employer, if you've got the sexiest building in that town and the coal mine closes down, you've got a problem. You're going to have a permanent impairment in the net operating income. So if you don't have permanent impairment of net operating income, you don't have a vacancy issue, the value of that building is still the value of the building, right? So across our portfolio, we didn't see a permanent impairment. We did see a delay because some people were asking for a deferral or, or some kind of payment until their EI benefits kicked in or CERB or, or, or whatever. So you didn't have a permanent impairment in the net operating income. You didn't have a permanent impairment in the business operations because vacancy is, was still very, very low. And then you've got interest rates that are extremely low. Right. And so when you look at all those factors, we've had, I think we've had about three or four appraisals come back, you know, kind of during the thick of this and buildings have gone up in value. Part of the reason, too, is that, you know, we aren't unlike, say, a public read or a big life co or pension plan. I'm not necessarily buying center ice 
buildings that don't have any hair on it and it's a two and a half cap and I'm going to stick it on my balance sheet for 40 years. And I'm not buying optimized assets. I'm not buying, you know, D-class buildings that I'm trying to turn into A-class buildings either, but I'm buying buildings that a lot of their intrinsic value hasn't been unlocked. So there's money there. So I buy it, uh, you know, at, at or below market value. I make some quick changes. I'll give you a perfect example. Bought a building in Kingston a few years back. And at the time, Kingston was the hottest market in Ontario, maybe even the hottest market in the country. Super low vacancy. This is going back to 2018. And so, you know, we agreed on a price in principle and then we got into due diligence. And, you know, people talk about cap rates and, you know, what, what kind of cap rates are you buying at? And quite frankly, I tell people I don't really care about going in cap rates. It's one single metric point in time. Could have things in there that I don't include, could have things in there that, you know, should be in there. It doesn't, quite frankly, it doesn't matter to me going in cap rate. So this building probably would have been at a, I don't know, like five and a half cap maybe for argument's sake. But here's why, you know, due diligence and understanding the asset that you're buying is so important and not just worrying about how pretty it is or what the going in cap rate is. So we looked at this building, 112 units. They had a land, a super on site that they were paying almost $90,000 a year to. So probably twice what you should be paying a landlord for or a super for a building of that size. You know, hottest market in the country. The super decided to take a one bedroom unit on the main floor and convert it to his own personal storage locker. So there's money left on the table. The super was also allowed to charge for, the landlord, I should say, was allowed to charge for parking. All the lease agreements said that you could charge for parking. They were giving parking away for free. So $30, $40 a month times 112 doors, do the math, right? The other thing is that the lease agreements also said that you could charge for air conditioning, rental, and hydro during the summer. They were giving air conditioning units away for free. And then finally, the landlord got into an agreement with a local cable internet provider to provide free internet to the entire building at a cost of almost $30,000 a year. So when you factor in all those things, that five and a half cap going in based on in-place rent and in-place expenses, was that a good deal? Maybe, maybe not. But when you kind of peel back the layers of the onion and see that, man, I could probably, this is probably worth seven and a half cap based on what I'm paying for it. When I take out the landlord or the super and all these other silly things that they're doing, there's a lot of good value in there. So when these appraisals come back, you know, after I've picked off all this low hanging fruit in a year, my buildings are worth more. That was long winded. And I didn't, so we still have part two of your question. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. And I think that's that interesting. Great. I mean, Adam and I, I mean, I appreciate the detail because I think there's a lot of our listeners that would have, um, you know, just learned a lot about just kind of the way that you can, find value buying, you know, non D assets, as you call it, like probably a pretty good asset, but there's just, there's, there's just yeah, little good, ways you can good. kind of tweak the operations. And all of a sudden you pulled out an extra, you know, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars of value or whatever it may be Correct. simply by increasing the NOI by, you know, 30,000 bucks. I guess I, my, my question was really, I mean, I, I appreciate you're saying like that focus on that NOI when there are no trades going on or, and, and maybe there are starting to be trades, but there's really no, as you had talked about, you know, appraisals using sort of the income approach and then the direct mm -hmm. comparison approach when they can't substantiate that direct comparison value, whether it's on a per suite basis or, or on a capitalization basis makes it more challenging for you to kind of really feel comfortable. Now, again, I guess everybody in your position that has these funds are challenged. So I think it's it's kind of apples to apples regardless because nobody knows what the true value of apartments are right now. But, but I appreciate can, the detail. You can still, you know, you can, and, and we do this all the time too. Certainly when we do our kind of year-end mark-to-market is we go in mystery shop. So it doesn't necessarily mean just because transactions aren't happening doesn't mean you can't get data on comparables, 
right? So, you know, my acquisition team, they'll put on their cargo shorts and their ACDC tank top and flip-flops and go to neighboring buildings to say, oh, uh, I, I, you know, I'm a prospective renter. And then you can find out what comparables are. You can see, okay, this suite is bigger than ours or, or this suite is, you know, they've got a laminate floor or stainless steel appliances or whatever. So you can certainly, there's still ways of getting comparables. Yeah, it's funny. I've heard, I've heard before the big giveaway that you're being mystery shot by a competitor is that they ask you what the rent is per square foot because tenants <laughs> never think that <laughs> yeah, way. No, no, no one ever thinks. That. Yeah, that's a that's an amateur move. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and for sure, you know, it's somebody who's just compiling data because we love per square foot rent. Tenants do not think that way. They they, they don't think that way at all. <laughs> I'm going to challenge you only because I think the conversation is interesting. Of course, Adam and I are apartment lenders, you know, quite frankly. So we eat, breathe, sleep this stuff. And I guess maybe I could qualify this by as a lender, particularly in my role kind of on the credit side. I'm, I'm usually thinking about worst case scenarios, but I'll add to the sentiment that we really haven't seen many deferrals. Quite frankly, most of our clients are saying the exact same things you are. However, as we look at it, you know, part of the challenge is there's that Canada emergency response benefit, right? Mm-hmm. And that I've heard some anecdotal conversations where clients are saying, I used to have those problem tenants where you know, I'd kind of have to grind to get the rent. And now all of a sudden, they're paying every month first of the month, like, like as all, all of a sudden they've got excess cash, you know, that serve as we understand it today and September 15th. So, you know, again, using the sort of the, the baseball analogy that, you know, we're only really in the second or third inning here. Mm-hmm. And I worry that sometimes we're getting ahead of ourselves with optimism that we did it. We got out of this COVID scenario. So I'm wondering what kind of internal conversations you guys are having just about the implications as the government starts pulling back some of the benefits that they kind of rolled out under on, in an emergency and yeah. how that's going to impact a lot of our tenants. Because quite frankly, as those government support initiatives get pulled back, I don't necessarily believe that the employment's going to come back at this, in the no. same ratio, right? I, I agree. And I think people are going to have to, look, it, it's you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? It's food and shelter. And so you know what are you going to give up to make sure that you don't you know, end up on the street kind of thing? So yeah, if we, if we backtrack a little bit, I, I agree. We're you know, second or third inning. I think one of the things that's important, and this is what we always look to do when we acquire a building, is really, you know, you want to understand the building, you want to understand the operations, all that stuff, but it's a customer service business at the end of the day. You want to understand your tenant profile. And we've seen it before where two weeks prior to a owner putting a building on sale, all of a sudden, you know, the tenant roster is, is full because they've just jammed it full of anybody that can fog up a mirror kind of thing. So we always look for those kinds of things during due diligence to make sure, you know, what kind of tenant profile are we dealing with? Do we have security deposits from those tenants? Do we have credit scores? Like, do we have all that information? That's the kind of tenant that we look for. And that's the kind of due diligence that we do on tenants that are coming into our building new. So, you know, we certainly want to make sure we've got the right tenant profile. What we have seen in our portfolio, which again, you know, certainly it's still all to, to play for as, you know, CERB kind of dries up. And if you're a sidewalk chalk artist, you're probably not going to have that job anymore. You're going to have to find something else to, to do. You know, our tenant profile has largely been dual income and retirees. So we're a little bit insulated from, you know, some of the shock of not being able to, you know, go back to your retail job or your restaurant job because we've got dual income or we've got retirees. You know, it's important to stay in touch with the tenants and make sure that we understand what's happening with them. And if they do need some help, what can we do to to help them? Now, you're going to get folks that are thinking they're going to game the system, right? 
They're going to collect their SERB payment. They're going to, you know, buy a PlayStation 4 and, you know, they're just going to spend their time doing that. And because the courts are closed, they're not going to get evicted. Well, you know, the reality of the situation is the courts are going to open up eventually, right? I mean, you know, the whole eviction process, which according to the mainstream media is probably a four-letter word, um, but it is the reality of apartments. If you think you're going to be able to game the system forever, you're, you're probably not going to be able to. You will get evicted at some point if you're playing games. But then the issue becomes, where are you going to go, right? We're in a market. The fundamentals of apartments haven't changed. We still have low or limited supply in a lot of cities and increasing demand. So if you think that you're going to be able to slug it out here and eventually you'll get evicted, where are you going to go? And are you going to be able to afford to move into another place? I you know I probably won't give you a very good referral when it comes to the next landlord that calls. So you know, what are you going to, what are you going to do? So people have to be very cautious about that. And, and certainly, you know, it's customer service for us. We want to make sure our tenants are happy and whatever we, we can do to, to help them through, through this time, we're going to do that. And we saw an additional 1%. Um, we had about half a percent of delinquency, but which is kind of standard what we have in, you know, quote unquote, normal times. But we did see about an extra 1% of our tenants asking for some kind of deferral or payment plan. So that was eight people, not a lot, right? Again, so, yeah. you know, we're investing in, in economically diverse cities and towns or those that are close to economically diverse areas. So we haven't seen that issue yet. And just actually to tack on to the argument about why tenants won't want to burn their landlords that I've heard that does make a fair bit of sense is a large part of the rental market is in below market units. Mm -hmm. So yes, you might burn your landlord for a couple of months rent if you game the system and then get yourself thrown out, but you're going to lose that over time when you're now paying market rent on a, a new unit elsewhere. Yeah. I'll give you another real life example. So a colleague here at the office, they're son lives downtown, was living in a two-bedroom apartment, felt it was too big, didn't want to have a roommate anymore, started shopping around for a one-bedroom, has not been able to find anything. Every apartment that he's tried to go into, he's being outbid. People are dumping, you know, oh, I'll give you an extra $100 a month and I'll give you three months up front if you let me have it now. And so there is, you know, kind of bidding wars still in the, like, in the apartment space. So, you know, yeah, you kind of don't want to burn your bridges. So on, on this theme of, you know, apartments resiliency and being, you know, pandemic proof, before we started recording, we were talking about the 30-year track record of apartments as an asset class not losing money. And of course, over 30 years, that would attract through, you know, multiple crises where, you know, we people would be sitting in the seat that we're sitting in now concerned about their asset class. Do you think that that 30-year record will remain intact through this pandemic? I am cautiously optimistic that yes, it will. In again, it and the, you know, in certain markets, right? Like if you, unfortunately, you know, Alberta has been, you know, it's been a double down for them in terms of having to deal with pandemic and having to deal with oil prices and everything like that. So in the right markets, absolutely. I still think that as long as there are, look, the biggest risk for apartments is population decline. So if you're in a market where there is going to be, you know, population decline, yeah, you need to be concerned about, you know, the, the long-term profitability of your building. But if you're in areas where you don't have an issue with population decline, you're a good landlord, you know, you're providing a service, you're safe, clean, you know, all that good stuff that customers want. I can't see a reason why. Look, in 2008, when you kind of dig deeper into what happened in, in the private apartment space. So the Toronto Stock Exchange was down 32% in 2008. Public REITs, 
right? Public REITs move in lockstep with the TSX, but they actually fell even further. They were down 38%, right? Profit-taking, panic, people sitting on cash, what have you, right? But those buildings were still operating. Those buildings were still collecting rent. Those buildings were still profitable. But the value of your investment in that building through a public REIT was down 38%. So private apartments were up 6.5% in 2008. But you got to dig a little bit deeper. In 2008, you had, you know, people were, there was a little bit of panic selling for private apartment owners because they needed to prop up their widget company because they couldn't make payroll. So, well, I'm going to sell my asset. I'm going to sell that apartment and I'm going to sell it at a fire sale so I can make payroll or whatever. So what ends up happening is you did see some negative value in apartments in 2008, but the cash flow was positive. So the net effect was you still had a profitable apartment building or the sector itself was still in total as a total return was positive. What might happen in, in 2020? You know, you may see a little bit of the opposite. If you're in a building where you do have vacancy or you do have a delinquency problem, you might see cash flow drop, but valuations might stay flat or even increase depending on how easily or how attractive your borrowing is, right? Because you're borrowing at two and three percent or less than that now, or less than, well, try, less than try one and a half percent if you do right? a five-year deal. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, I mean, and so we do like in, in our portfolio, we do 10 year fixed, right? A lot of it's through you guys. So thanks for that. And it's like you lock up your mortgage payments for 10 years. You don't have to worry about what's going to happen. Yeah. If you want 15 or 20 year term, you let us know. For sure. Um, I mean, I think we've talked a lot about apartments and we're kind of getting to the end of the, of the interview. So I, I wanted to bring in, you, you have your flagship fund and, and, mm. and maybe just talk about the balance fund, what that is and kind of where you are in the stage of capital raising. Yeah, sure. So, the, you know, the balance fund we, we launched in 2018. So it doesn't have the sort of the, the longer track record that the apartment fund has. That one started in 2016. But what we wanted to do was, you know, because we were getting access to, to all these great deals, you know, we do get a lot of clients that say, great, I like, you know, investing in apartments with you guys, but what else can we do together? So the, you know, the idea for us was to create this balanced fund that has a kind of three pronged or three legs to the stool in terms of investing. So one of the things that we wanted to do was give investors kind of instant diversification in real estate. We wanted to kind of spread out the risk across different real estate sectors, but we also wanted to smooth out the cash flow. So a lot of investors that we deal with, they like blending but they don't want to have to search for that next lending deal when the mortgage matures. We also have investors that like development, but they don't want to sit on their hands and not collect any cash flow until a development completes, you know, three, five, seven years, what have you. So in the balance fund, we've put in income producing assets that aren't apartments, so commercial industrial mixed use. So you get, you know, sort of asset appreciation, you get cash flow from that. We also do kind of small scale commercial lending. And so you get cash flow from that, but then you don't have to worry about redeploying the funds. We can kind of recycle or redeploy the funds for you. And then we also do real estate development. So either we partner with developers or we would be the developer ourselves. So having all three of those things kind of smooths out the cash flow, because if you want to have exposure to development, but you know you don't want to have to put up 50,000 or 250,000, whatever the minimums are for certain development investments, you can get in at a much lower price point and still have exposure to that asset class, but also diversifying yourself. So that's what the balance fund does. And same question I asked about your flagship fund. What have you seen in terms of redemptions during COVID? Oh, for the, the balance, balance fund. Yeah. Zero. That's a, that's a good sign. 
Yeah. How big are both funds? Like, sorry, maybe you already mentioned it on the flagship fund. But uh, yeah, yeah, no. So the um, apartment fund is at one ninety seven right now. Uh, as I said, we've got a closing next week that's going to put us well over two hundred million, and it's approaching a thousand doors in the apartment fund. And so the balance fund is in and around five, five and a half million right now. So it's quite small. We're just raising money internally right now for that one. Cliff, this has been great. Of course, you know, the topic matter is apartments, which is, you know, near and dear to Aaron's and mine heart. So we're always happy to do a deep dive in apartments. Uh, it's been super informative too, in terms of talking about capital raise and, you know, as a sign of the strength of the entire apartment sector, I'm uh, very glad to hear about the performance during the crisis, the the lack of redemptions, you know, it will help me sleep better at night. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you for your time today. So this has been super informative. I do appreciate it. Thanks All a lot, right. Cliff. Yeah. And, Thanks, guys. And up next, we've got the after show coming, so please stay tuned. Welcome back. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast after show, of course, where Adam and I kind of give you our real opinions of the interview we just did. I love apartments, so that was fun. I was joking with Adam while he was Cliff was going through the details of you know finding the intricacies of value in an asset. You know, we we text back and forth during the show to keep keep ourselves aligned. I was like, I'm bored. I think. I mean, I hope our listeners learn something from it. But when you underwrite thousands and thousands of apartment deals, you start to you know those little intricacies of you know super space or parking charges or downloading utilities. It's it becomes sort of second nature. Yeah, it is. It is all good info for sure. Um, it just obviously we're going through it. You know, ten deals a day at a time. Hey, uh, I got to assume a lot of our listeners have no exposure to apartments. Like, I think we get two apartment centric at times. Like, everybody understands apartments, and I hope that sometimes we don't take that for granted. Because if you are working at a REIT that, or you know, like we just did with Charlie Deeks about you know pure REIT right, or, or pirate. You know, if you all you do is industrial, you wouldn't have no idea about the intricacies of finding ten bucks here and ten bucks there and an NOI on a on an apartment deal, right? Well, yeah, I started out my career in industrial, as you know, and yeah, people that aren't in it assume it's just purely a by the pound. It's super generic. It all just kind of comes down to what you're paying per square foot, and that's it. And there is a ton of nuance to it, and. You know, like something like office, I don't have a, a ton of exposure to office. I've only done a handful of deals in my entire career. And yeah, I know there's a whole another level there that you could go to that uh, I've definitely not gone to. But uh, yeah, I know he knows his stuff. It's, uh, it was all, and I did appreciate the thought about what goes into apartments being a durable asset class during a pandemic. Oh, I, I totally agree. I mean, I guess. I have this for those that are regular listeners and have kind of followed Adam and I. Like we've been fortunate enough to interview a lot of a lot of people, over the, especially in the last the last two or three months. And I worry that people are too, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, are trying to rush to optimism or trying to rush to the back to the old normal or the new normal, however you want to define it. The numbers are down. We're in stage two or stage three, depending on where you are, maybe stage four in certain parts of the country. But I just, I worry how quickly things can change. and we don't really know what the implications are of of a lot of this stuff. Like, I just I don't understand how we can think that the employment number is just going to come back full fledged. That you know, retail or office or apartment rents are going to stay strong throughout all this. I guess I just I worry. Maybe that's just the lender in me. <laughs> well, lenders worry about downside, right? It's the uh, investors always think about upside, and lenders think about downside because that's the the only exposure we get. One other thing I did find interesting 
you know, given that they're an open-ended fund, they've had very little redemptions, that's great. But I know that some funds have had a moderate run on redemptions has been issues there. And so when he referenced some other funds that were open for new money, but closed for redemptions, I just can't imagine if you're a fund operator saying that with a straight face to people. It seems, it seems so counterintuitive that we're not comfortable yeah. giving back money, but we'll definitely take in money. Maybe I, I don't, I'm not involved in that space. Maybe there's some piece of the puzzle that I'm not getting because that's not you know my main focus. But when I heard him say that, I was thinking, wow, that's chutzpah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and, and credit to Cliff and his group, his team, like the, the fact that they've got that little. And I mean, the investment strategy is sound. I mean, whether you know in apartments or not, listening to what he's talking about, you know, just being in an economically diverse location, kind of focusing on retirees and double income tenants. I mean, they really have insulated themselves to any kind of shock, whether it's a health crisis or a financial crisis. I mean, apartments are obviously the stable asset. I know in this particular crisis, you know, industrials fared really, really well, but I think as protected as you can get from you know any challenges in any kind of crisis, I mean, apartments are the asset to own and then there are ways to do it. And they've clearly kind of figured out a formula to really, really insulate themselves from anything. So I mean, credit to them. It, I mean, really, it is spot on for the way you want to invest in apartments. And I'm not saying that because I own Equiton fund stock or anything like that. You might own a hundred million soon, though. Uh, by your line of questioning, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that was, that was uh, I don't know. Do people put caps on it? Do they just kind of say, "Listen, you know what? I don't want that much money." I, I probably not. But well, there could be a risk too from having such a large portion of a fund held by one person that could then look for a uh, redemption in a short period of time. Real estate is generally time-consuming, difficult to get into, and time-consuming, difficult to get out of. I know that uh, for a lot of people looking at investments, it's a serious detractor of real estate as a whole, the fact of how illiquid it is and uh, and slow-moving. But again, this is not my area of expertise, so you're just listening to a lender speculate on <laughs> what, what <laughs> yeah. fund operators are doing. You know, uh, you know, one thing I wanted to talk about that I just didn't want to get into because I, I don't think he wanted to, but that was just, I mean, we, I was kind of pushing him on cap rates and the valuations and, 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 and he gave a good answer. Cap rates are just a, a point in time. And however, they're still useful for guiding on value. One of the things that I always find interesting is the connection to cap rates and interest rates and the delta between the two. And, and you know, that delta has more or less stayed the same in history. Like it's always been 150 to 250 basis points. I mean, there's been deviations, but for the most part, that's the same. And then he talked about, or I mentioned, you know, you can get a five-year mortgage rate at, you know, 150 basis points or 1.5% interest rate. Like, think about that. You get a five-year fixed-term mortgage on an apartment asset at 1.5%, give or take. I mean, depending on where the bond is at the time, which is, I mean, that's inflationary, really. Like, and that's insane. So then using the historic delta, of, you know, that 150 to 250 for cap rates, because interest rates have come down sort of pre from pre-COVID, you have to assume cap rates potentially have come down. I don't know, I'm just using that as a general sort of guideline, but it, it is, it'll be really interesting to see what happens when transactions pick up, if interest rates stay where they are today, where the valuations do start to start specking out. Well, it is also consideration if the amount of positive leverage you can get on an investment is a real driving force for your investment right now, Ignoring, I'm talking about in a bubble, ignore the market uncertainty and rents kind of all over the map. Now would be a great time to buy an apartment because the amount of positive leverage you can get is very substantial. Cap rates haven't really moved that much, but lending's gone down quite a bit. And that, that delta you're referring to has got to be one of the widest points of the last however many years. So ignoring a lot of other market fundamentals, that would be one indicator that uh, it is time to buy. Not that I'm advocating it. And at the end of this show, there is a disclaimer that we're not giving investment advice, but... It is a thought to consider. Yeah. Yeah. And, and 
okay, let me play devil's advocate again. I'm, I'm negative Nancy, right? Like governments all over the world are just giving money away. I, I got the numbers in front of me from just, just the CERB. And it's right now it's five fifty nine point four billion dollars have been given out in CERB. And that was as of you know two weeks ago. So that number's growing and growing and growing. So and you know, of course Canadian debt was downgraded about a month ago. So rating agencies start saying, you know what, like I'm not sure a lot of these governments have you know, maybe they've overextended themselves, or maybe it's just gonna be a lot harder for them to recoup or balance the budget or, or get out of that deficit. And all of a sudden the bondholders, guys that own Canada bonds and, or other like instruments start saying, no, I want more return for that investment because you are stretched really, really thin as a result of all this stuff. And again, back to that analogy of rolling in the second and third inning and there's six more innings, five or six, seven more innings to go. There could be a lot more money that needs to be doled out by the Canadian government. So then all of a sudden, if, if we get downgraded again, all of a sudden bond yields start skyrocketing. You know, there's a lot of potential risk. I guess, again, I know I'm being really kind of negative here, but I just, I feel like we're so, it's way too early to say, oh, we're back. You know, transactions are coming. And here we go back to the way it was in February of 2020. Well, yeah, when I, when I talk to investors about, you know, future interest rates, which is always a tough conversation. I mean, trying to guess it accurately is, is a difficult job, but that is one contributing factor is the government controls monetary policy and can influence interest rates. They can't afford for their lending costs to go up. Therefore, the interest rates that we can lend money out should remain low for that reason too, especially with the, with the ballooning debt. Yeah, and speaking out of the other side of my mouth, I mean, look at Japan, right? There have been you know, serious deficits and their interest rates have been less than 1% or negative now. Um, for, you know, I don't know what it was, 25, 30 years or something like that, right? So like, yeah, we could be in a perpetual low interest rate environment until the end of history. Who knows, right? <laughs> well, this is getting uh, really negative here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. We're lenders. I don't know. Low interest rates is not yeah. a bad thing for us. Right? <laughs> anyway. uh, one other thought I had when we were listening to that was uh, 2015 was a good year to start an apartment fund. You know, that was the hockey stick moment for apartment investment. So if you were to pick a year that really took an inflection point for an yeah. asset class that just skyrocketed in value upwards, 2015 would be, you just about nailed it, jumped in right when it was getting good. So, that, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes a little bit of luck doesn't hurt uh, as well when you get in then. So, Aaron, before we go, a question they're going to ask in jest, you know, if the answer if you don't want to, but we've used the analogy of second or third inning a couple of times now. Real estate people love sports analogies to describe every aspect of their business. Which sport is your preferred analogy <laughs> generator? Oh, I don't, know. <laughs> I don't I don't really do a lot of analogies. And you know, I had to qualify when I said it that it was a baseball analogy just so that Adam knew what I was talking about. Yeah. As someone who doesn't follow any sport, I don't believe. No, I, I don't. I do catch sports analogies because I just have to pause and think about the context of what it means. So when people are talking about Hail Marys and extra innings and all that, it's, uh, I got I to gotta think about it. What sport is that? How many, how many innings in a hockey game, Adam? <laughs> we got to get this deal to the goal line. You know, there's all kinds. It, just, it, it permeates. It, it permeates. That's funny. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. I, I don't have an answer to that. I'll tell you my yeah. favorite sports, which are unique. My two favorite sports are Formula One and golf. And I don't think there's a lot of, definitely no Formula One analogies that I can think of. I guess golf, you can you know, drive it down the fairway and things like that that, that come out of it. Yeah, the problem with the, I'm into squash and yeah, that, it doesn't translate to sports analogies. But just for the listeners, just pay attention for the next couple of days. How often do you hear sports analogies in discussions about real estate? And it will really surprise you because as a non-sports <laughs> listener, 
I, I do notice it. So <laughs> because you're you're trying to hold on to the rope to understand what the hell's yes. being talked about. <laughs> yeah, I've never even thought about it. I, it's just so ingrained in my brain as somebody yeah. that only watches sports shows, right? So <laughs> that's funny. Well, that's the after show. I guess we'll end with a bit of levity. Well, thanks for listening. Yeah. Thanks to First National for powering the podcast. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.